Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, was recently interviewed on NPR about the changing landscape of Christianity in America. He was interviewed at the Together for the Gospel Conference, a gathering of about 10,000 pastors and ministry leaders from all over the country and really from all over the world. A number of our pastors were at that gathering. And that particular conference was under the banner of what it means to be Protestant. In particular, what it means for the word protest to be in the middle of the word Protestant. That word protest sometimes gets lost in the word Protestant. During the interview, Moeller addressed the cultural challenges that evangelical Christians face as it relates to some foundational issues related to morality, whether it's extramarital sex, same-sex marriage, transgender issues, no-fault divorce, or religious liberty issues, Moeller was identifying that our culture and our society is rapidly changing. That's not news for you. We are in the midst of a very tumultuous cultural moment. But it was the following statement that grabbed my attention, and I think it's an accurate summary not only of what is happening in our culture, but also what is happening in the church. Moeller said this, listen carefully. Conservative Christians in America are undergoing a huge shift in the way we see ourselves in the world. We are on the losing side of a massive change that's not going to be reversed in all likelihood in our lifetimes. Christians must adapt to the changed cultural circumstances by finding a way to live faithfully in a world in which we are going to be the moral exception. I think he's right. But you shouldn't hear those words as defeatist or pessimistic. Russell Moore in his book, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, a book I commend to you. I think we are still offering it in our resource area. He suggests that this moral tide change does not necessarily mean that God has given up on American Christianity. Rather, he says, it may be a sign that God is rescuing American Christianity from itself. That the church has a unique opportunity to reclaim our role as strangers and aliens and to realize that the gospel has normally been strange to the culture. It's just in our lifetime, that island of biblical Christianity is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Today we're starting a new short series called Dare to Live Differently on the Life of Daniel. It's a new series, but it's not a new theme. In fact, if you've been sort of tracking where we've been going in 2016, there there has been an intentional plan. We started in January looking at the subject of lamentations and what it means to express our concern, our grief, when it seems as though God has given us what we deserve or what we want. And then we studied heaven, really trying to get our minds around where our true citizenship lies. And we're targeting September 
to begin a study of 1 Peter, where we'll learn what it means to be a Christian exile. I've wanted to study 1 Peter for a while, and so in many respects we're building up to that. The working title, by the way, for the 1 Peter series is Coming Out Christian. The point of that sermon series coming up and in this one is to help us avoid two things. First, to avoid a Christianity that is indistinguishable from the culture. Some of you in your marketplace, nobody knows that you're a Christian, and that's a problem. But on the other hand, we have to avoid a Christianity that builds walls around itself digs moats and fills it with gospel gators to keep all of the people out. And instead, I think, rather than isolation or complete assimilation, we need to embrace what Russell Moore calls an engaged alienation. He says, a Christianity that preserves the distinctiveness of our gospel while not retreating from our callings as neighbors, as friends, and as citizens. So we're going to look at that in principle form in 1 Peter. But for the next four weeks, I want you to see it in an illustrated form through the life of Daniel. Sometimes we take a principle and then illustrate it. What we're going to do over the next number of weeks is illustrate it and then help you see the principles underneath it in 1 Peter in the fall. My hope is that you'll be exhorted to embrace what it means to follow Jesus right where you are in our culture, and that you would stand in the line with countless men and women throughout history, both in the Bible and in the world, who figured out what it meant to serve God in their generation. In order to understand the book of Daniel, you need to know some things about it in terms of background. In verses 1 and 2, we learn that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So the story is set in the midst of the Babylonian captivity. God had warned the people of Judah and Israel that if they didn't amend their ways, he was going to raise up national leaders from pagan nations who he would use as the rod of discipline. In 722, it happened to the northern kingdom of Israel. As Assyria was raised up, and they came in and wiped out the northern kingdom. And Judah did not listen and learn from the lesson of the northern kingdom and continued her rebellious ways. And so God raised up the Babylonian Empire, who became the dominant superpower in the ancient Near East, and Babylon became the rod of discipline for the people of Judah. After Babylon defeated the Egyptian army that was occupying Judah's southern territory, the people of God, the city of Jerusalem, and Judah became a vassal state of the Babylonian Empire, and their strategy was to use a series of deportations in order to integrate people into the Babylonian culture. That's what's happening in verse 3 and 4. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. So notice these are the upper echelon of society. Youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So Daniel and his three friends are a part of this deportation, or maybe a better way to think about it, this political kidnapping. They were prisoners of war. 
They were part of the ruling elite, the highly educated. They were the ruling class of the people of Judah, and they were now removed and taken to Babylon. And they were part of this indoctrination program where they would be trained in the Babylonian ways. At this time in history, and under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon was the largest city in the world. I don't know what image you have of the city of Babylon. Maybe these images will help you. Babylon had about 150 to 200,000 people in it. Its massive walls, impressive gates, extensive construction made it a signature city in the known world. Its seven-storied ziggurat temple to the god Marduk made it not only the intellectual center but the spiritual center of the civilized world. Daniel and his three friends are brought to this city, really the center of the entire civilized world. But you need to know that the city of Babylon is more than just a city. In the Bible, it's actually a metaphor. You see, from its founding in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel to the use of the word Babylon in Revelation 18, it describes an anti-God mindset that's in the world. So Babylon becomes a metaphor for a worldly, rebellious, and antagonistic culture. So when you see the word Babylon, it's more than just a city in the Bible in the same way that the city, Vegas, is more than Las Vegas. Nobody says what happens in Greenwood stays in Greenwood. <laughs> well, I'm sure bad stuff happens in, of all places, Greenwood. But you know what it means when it says what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, because Vegas means more than a city. The book of Daniel, however, is not written just to simply record the story of Daniel. The first six chapters record the story of Daniel's life, and the chapters 7 through 12 are apocalyptic in nature, and they show the reader a vision of God's control over history. So the book of Daniel is really essentially not about Daniel, it's ultimately about God. God is the one who cares for his people by placing Daniel in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. God is the one who reveals the dream to him. God is the one who delivers the three friends from the fiery furnace. God is the one who closes the mouths of the lions. And yet Daniel and his three friends are in the midst of all of this. So this book was written in order to help a displaced people know that even when the bottom drops out around you, God is still in control of history, and he even has people placed in positions that you may not even fully be aware of. At the end of Daniel 1, it says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's at least three, maybe four administrations and 70 years of influence. Somehow, David figured out how to navigate his way through the Babylonian culture. He was providentially positioned to serve in these four different administrations over seven decades. And it's an amazing story of God's faithfulness and the courage of a man to live in Babylon without letting Babylon live in him. And that's what I hope happens to you, is that you think through in a new way, I gotta live in this world, but how do I not let this world live in me? And you gotta figure out in your family and in your life and in your workplace and in your school and in your summer job how you navigate through that, how to live in the world but not let the world live in you. So chapter one, 
Daniel dares to believe with wise conviction. He and his three friends are a part of this indoctrination program. They would have had no choice in the matter. They're political prisoners. They've been kidnapped from their homes. And what's more, they would have been fairly young. Likely, they were teenagers. So, kids, so glad that you're here. Look at me. What I'm going to talk about this morning is not just a Bible story. I'm talking about a young man and his friends, probably about age 15, who figured out, how do I live a godly life in an ungodly world? And my prayer for you is that you'll figure out how to do that, and that you'll figure out how to do that even better than your parents did. Because we need you to be more godly than your parents. We need you to be more godly than your parents. These young men were being groomed for some kind of service within the Babylonian Empire. We don't know exactly what it was. It could have been that they were going to help assimilate other Jews into Babylonian culture. It may have been that the idea was that you put them in positions of power so they could keep their own people in subjection. We don't know. But in verses 5 to 6, we get a sense of the plan. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. So understand, they get the royal treatment literally. Whatever the king eats, they eat. Whatever the king drinks, they drink. Part of the plan, I think, was to show them, if you go along with the plan, you will be treated like nobody else. Tells us that they were to do this for three years. After three years, they were to stand before the king, says verse 5. And as a result of that standing before the king, they would be positioned in various roles of authority within the empire. Verse 6, we get to know their names. Among these are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Notice the Jewish flavor, both of their names and of where they are from. And then verse 7, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. Their names, interestingly, have something to do with pagan gods. Daniel's name means protect the king, wife of Bel. Another name means who is like Aku. Another name means servant of the shining one. So listen, every time their names were called, it was in reference to a pagan deity, a god that they didn't believe in. And what's fascinating is that Daniel and his three friends did not make any issue over their names that they were given, but they did make an issue out of what they would eat. Verse 8, Daniel resolved. New American Standard says he made up his mind, or King James says he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, why did he draw this line? Honestly, we don't know. Some people think that it was because the food was ceremonial un ceremonially unclean. The problem is that Daniel 10, we find him eating that very same food. So that doesn't seem to be the case. Others think that the food may have been sacrificed to idols, but there's no suggestion of that. I think the view that I like best is that Daniel and his three friends 
according to one commentator, avoided the luxurious diet of the king's table as a way of protecting themselves from being ensnared by the temptations of the Babylonian culture. In other words, they could have eaten it. They just said, we don't want to. Their diet reminded them, in effect, that they are exiles. Their, their, few, their food choice was really a protest against the Babylonian system. It didn't seem to be a moral requirement. Rather, it was a chosen conviction. Think of this, a way for them to be in Babylon, but not to be of Babylon. So can I just ask you, is there anything like that in your life? Do you have, do you have anything that you're like, I could do that, but I don't do that, because it helps for me to be reminded that I'm not really of this world. Some of you grew up in really conservative backgrounds, and so you may have swung all the way to the other side, that you're so worried about being conservative that the challenge for you is too much osmosis. Others of you have come out of very secular backgrounds, and so for you the challenge is not too much osmosis, it's that you need to figure out what of my former life do I still be a part of, and what do I not be a part of? You need to know that every follower of Jesus, every Christian's had to face that issue. But what's equally fascinating is how they chose to express their conviction. See, these young men are wise beyond their years. According to verse 8, Daniel appealed to the chief of the eunuchs that he might not be allowed to defile himself. As a result, God stepped in and gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So Daniel makes an appeal, verse 10, the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you, endanger my, you would endanger my head with the king. In other words, Daniel, this is a great conviction that you have, but if... I, I agree to this, and you don't look healthy, like I'm going to be in enormous trouble. In fact, he says, I'll be executed. And so Daniel has this conviction, but notice how wise he is in the way in which he handles it. Verse 11, Daniel said to the steward from whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said this, test your servant for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of, our, of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Notice the wisdom here. Daniel has this conviction. He has this desire to be in but not of. At the same time, he doesn't want his conviction to be overly burdensome, even dangerous to somebody who's in his near term of influence. And so Daniel says, look, why don't you test us and then you can see if this is a good plan or not. As a result, there's great wisdom here. At the end of 10 days, verse 15, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in the flesh in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine, and they, they, the wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. And then verses 17 to 20 are remarkable. It says, as for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So God put his hand a blessing on them. Now, no doubt, they were also working very hard to study and understand the literature and the material. And one of the things that I want to highlight from the book of Daniel is this. These young men worked really hard to understand and be educated, and they were a part of the system while not being a part of the system, if you know what I mean. 
And God blessed them and gave them favor. Verse 19, the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So Daniel and his three friends learned how to navigate a very difficult situation. They learned how to live in the midst of the Babylonian culture without falling into the ditch of blind osmosis where everything just comes in or the other ditch of cultural isolation. They figured out how to be convictional while also being wise. Oh, how we need Christians today who are convictional and wise. Some are wise, but not convictional. Some are convictional, but they're not wise. We need followers of Jesus who are both in our world and in our culture. They didn't fight the Babylonian names, but yet they requested a different diet. They they must have studied hard and worked to learn everything that they needed. And that's what I want you to be. I want you to be the best chemist in your lab. I want you to be the top artist in your field. I want you to be the best financial counselor where God has placed you. I want you to be the person in your school system that solves complex problems. I want you to be the employee that your boss looks at and says, that guy or that woman, I can count on them. So you can make your way up and be convictional and wise. To be a Christian doesn't mean you have to be sloppy intellectually or to be somehow less gifted or refined or articulate or good at what you do. These men worked really hard, God blessed them, and the king noticed. They figured out how to follow their God in the midst of a hostile culture. They dared to believe, and yet they did it with conviction that was wise, and God blessed them with influence. According to verse 21, Daniel was in the seat of power for 70 years. You know what we need today? We need people who are going to contend for the culture, not those who are going to be at war with the culture. We need people who know their Bibles, people who are known for the fruit of the Spirit, and people who are known in their field of study that they have really, really, really mastered their area of expertise. They dared to believe with wise conviction. Here's the second thing. Chapter 2, they dared to believe with dependent faith. They dared to believe with dependent faith. Chapter 2 shows us a life or death crisis that emerged during the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. At this moment in Babylonian history, Nebuchadnezzar was about 30 years old. He was at the top of his political career, and apparently he was a very religious man. In fact, there's even a prayer that he prayed when he ascended to the throne that can be found in the British Library. As a part of his worldview was the fact that he believed that the gods revealed the future by virtue of dreams. So in chapter 2, we see that in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. 
So verse 2, the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And what happens here is the king says, I need you to interpret a dream. And all of his wise interpreters say, wonderful king, tell us the dream. And the king says, no, 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 you need to tell me the interpretation of the dream, and I'm not going to tell you the dream. Can you imagine? The interpreter's like, no, 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 no. In fact, they go on in, in, in verse 7. It says, they answered the king a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and, and we will show its interpretation. That's how it's done. Tell us the dream, and we will interpret it. And the king answered, verse 8, and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, but there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words. He's accusing them of treason. You're speaking lying and corrupting words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I know, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. And the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing. What are they saying? You're being unreasonable. You're crazy. This is impossible. There's no way. Verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not in flesh. And because of this, verse 12, the king was very angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So here's an irrational decree. Can't give me the dream? Then all of you, all the wise men in the kingdom are going to be killed. So the decree went out, verse 13, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So so you see, you have this culture, and you have a king who's disturbed because he wants to know what the dream is, but he, he, he doesn't remember the dream, so now we're in a major problem, and the king has issued an edict that all the wise men are going to be killed, and once again, Daniel enters the picture. As they're being sought for execution, Daniel, verse 14, replied, notice, with prudence and discretion. He didn't reply with panic and accusations of unfairness. He replied with prudence and discretion. You'll see why in a moment. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Notice he, he's asking a question. What, why is there such a rush to have all of these people killed. Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. That's a pretty big step of faith. Then look at verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Oh, how valuable a few friends are when you're in exile. How valuable a couple friends are at the office, or a couple friends in the neighborhood, or a couple friends in your small group who you can call up or send a text and saying, look, I got a big meeting coming up at 10 o'clock tomorrow, and something's coming down, and I need to know what I need to say, and I don't have any idea what I'm going to talk about. And I don't mean like you don't know your presentation. I mean like we got an ethical issue and I got to decide, is this the line? Is this the moment when I say, if we go here, I need to tender my resignation? Is this the moment when I need to say to my employer, 
we need to have a talk about this because I, I can't go here. Oh, to have friends in those gray area moments who we can seek the Lord with together. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. God answered Daniel's prayer, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Notice his God centered us in verses 20 to 23. This is one of the reasons why I think Daniel can answer with prudence and discretion, not panic and fear, because he says this, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes time and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. What Daniel knows is this, Nebuchadnezzar may be sitting on that throne, but God put him there. And he knows, and you'll see this in the story of the fiery furnace. I love the moment when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to Nebuchadnezzar the king, our God can deliver us. But if he doesn't, I love that. He can do it, but if he doesn't, know that he still reigns. These guys are like, look, no matter what happens, you can kill us now, wonderful, or we're going to be delivered. Either way, we win, you lose. That's the message of Daniel chapter 3. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He, he knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O oh God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and now have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So Daniel is brought before the king. He uses this moment to humbly acknowledge that there's no way that he should receive any honor or glory for this. He says in verse 27, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel's God-centeredness and his godliness are on display in this moment. In verses 31 to 45, he reveals the dream to the king, which essentially involved a statue with representing various kingdoms, and then there's a stone that comes through and wipes out the statue, and essentially, the message of that dream is that Nebuchadnezzar may be powerful, but God's kingdom is the ultimate eternal kingdom. And the king's response in verses 46 to 49 is stunning. He falls face down before Daniel and paid homage to him. He acknowledges the power of the one true God. He says, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. And then in verse 48, he promotes Daniel as ruler over Babylon and as the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So here is this Jewish kidnapped boy who's made his way through the indoctrination program, and now he's in charge of all of the wise men of Babylon and he arranges for his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to be appointed over particular affairs in the province of Babylon. Keep that in mind, because next week we'll look at the moment when they're all asked to bow down to this statue, and it's not just that three slave boys take a stand, it's that three men in significant political office say, we're not bowing down. So what we have here is in the midst of a national crisis with an angry, irrational king, Daniel sought the Lord and stood in the gap for the people of God. Here is a young man who is deeply God-centered, and he dared to believe 
with dependent faith. It's Daniel 1 and 2. So how do we live differently? How do we preserve the uniqueness of the gospel without retreating from our culture? Let me give you a few suggestions. Number one, I want to encourage you and exhort you to dare to believe that God is in control. Do you believe that God is in control? Because it really, it kind of matters that you can say yes in this room. It matters. But not like it does. When you get an email that says, our company has been sold and the other company's coming in, and I'm sure there'll be no layoffs. And you look at your computer screen, you're like, yeah, right. And then all the people around you are like, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. And that moment right then is when you have an unprecedented opportunity to be different than everybody else. Go down the panic road, go down the angry road, go down the, who do they think they are? Da, 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 I've seen this happen. Or you can know, I serve a God who sets up kings and takes down kings. I serve a God who's, who holds my future in the palm of his hands. This truth means you can rest knowing that God controls who owns your company. You see somebody move in next door, and you, for whatever reason, you see them and you're like, oh no, here it goes. The Hatfields moved in or whatever. <laughs> they got like 15 dogs and you're like, oh, and, and a rooster. Okay, so there it is. <laughs> God controls who moves in next door. God controls who your boss is. God controls who your employees are and what challenges they have. God is the one who controls who fills the vacancy on the Supreme Court. And God is the one who will determine who our next president is. So he's never out of control. He's always working. And therefore, here's my exhortation. Christians ought to be the kind of people who are calm, faith-filled, and joyful, regardless of the circumstances. And when everybody else is going to run off the edge of the cliff, you ought to stay there and say, my God's in heaven, and I serve a king who's seated on the throne right now. I'm good. I'm going to trust him. When everyone else is panicking, when everyone else is full of fear, you can rest knowing your king is not out of control. Your boss may be out of control. Your company may be out of control. Your employees may be out of control. The government may be out of control. But your God isn't out of control. You believe that? Because it's easy to believe it in this room. Not so easy when you're in your cubicle and there's all kinds of people around you freaking out. Dare to live differently. Secondly, dare to resolve to live a godly life. The Bible calls us to be a people who are marked by godliness. 1 Peter 2 says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. So is your conduct honorable with the people around you? 
in your neighborhood, at the workplace, in your school, at your summer job? Are you known as the godly person, or are you there and nobody knows that you're a follower of Jesus? I just want to push on that. If nobody knows you're a follower of Jesus, my question would be, what in the world are you doing? You're not there just to make money. You're not there to live in your neighborhood. You're not there just to go to school. You're there to be a follower of Jesus. If you're there and nobody knows who you really are, then my question is, do you know who you really are? Each of us has to work this out differently before the Lord, but my question is, are there any areas of resolve in your life? You can't have a position on everything, but you can have a position on some things. Or have you allowed the thinking of the world, the affections of the world, the way the world works, that culture to so shape you that there's nothing unique about your life that would mark you as a follower of Jesus? Are you so worried that people would think, oh, you're a conservative Christian, that therefore you just go incognito? Again, you gotta figure out how to work that out. Daniel did, and we'll all work it out differently. We'll have to love each other in, in the different ways in which we work that out. Some of you work with believers in the same office place. You may even have different ways in which you work that out. But the fact of the matter is you have to figure out how do I live in the world without the world living in me? Third, oh church, be wise and tactful. You know, unfortunately, the message of the gospel has often been hindered because of how God's people have either been unwise or foolish or unprepared for critical moments when they were called to give an answer or to speak on behalf of the body of Christ. Pray that God would give you wisdom to know, is this the battle that I fight? Is this the line that I draw? And then that if it is, that you would know how to be gracious and how to be kind in what you say and do. I was having a conversation with one of our church members not too long ago. They were having an office party, and as a part of the office party, they were all going to go to a, a theater, a movie, where had, that movie had been bought out by the company, which wouldn't necessarily have been a problem. The challenge was that the movie that they were all going to see was a problem. This is not a question. I'm not talking about a gray area. I'm saying a movie that I would say, like, where this person was, there's no way this person should be in that movie. And he was asking me, what do I do? And I said, thanks for thinking about asking that question. And what you need to do is go to your boss and say, look, I really appreciate the opportunity for us to be together. And you need to know I value being together socially with my other people that I work with. And, and I'll go to the meal and I'll, I'll do all that. But, but you're asking me to go to a movie and I, I can't because there's stuff in that. Like, I, I just, I can't, I can't see. And I'm wanting to know, is there a way? How can we work this out so that I can honor you and yet not violate my conscience? And that conversation actually went remarkably well. The, the, the employer understood, said, yeah, you know, I wonder, that's probably not the best choice. And in that moment, was able to be light without being a scorch and burn sort of person. Our culture needs to see winsome and gracious conviction on the part of God's people. Number four, dare to be a person of gospel influence. 
So here's the deal. God has placed some of you in important positions. For that matter, he's placed all of us in important positions. The, 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 the person who is in the cubicle next to you, the person who shares the locker right next to you, or the seat around the boardroom that you happen to occupy, or the students that are in your classroom, or the other classmates that you're a part of, or the folks who are going to be in your fraternity next year. God has placed all of these people around you, and what seat at the table have you been given? Which crisis does God, has God allowed you to witness? Don't miss the opportunity to embrace divinely given opportunity to, to share the gospel, to provide your input, or to give wise and biblical advice. Some people have never heard an intelligent and kind defense of a biblical value. And that just might be your opportunity. Pray for favor so that you can continue to have even more influence. And if God blesses you and you get in conversations that are significant, be sure you keep your pride in check so you keep your seat. Number five, and finally, dare to be an engaged alien. The gospel message that Jesus died for our sins 2,000 years ago and that God could take that sacrifice and forgive me of my sins is strange to the world. It's always been strange to the world. For, for a while in American history, it was less strange to a majority of the culture, but it's becoming increasingly strange. And by the way, that isn't unusual in the scale of human history or biblical history. The gospel or the message of God's morality has normally been strange. To, to live according to the morality of the Bible, to allow the teachings of the scripture to define our thinking in 21st century is odd to many people. And yet, it shouldn't make us retreat, give up, dig a moat around our home, or be silent. The Bible calls us to be strangers and aliens, and yet we are also called to be engaged. Our mission is to go into the world and herald the good news. And this gospel and its ethic have always been strange to the world. Russell Moore, in his book, Onward, tells the story of engaging in a conversation with a woman who had never talked, she'd never talked with a person who really believed in heterosexual marriage, never talked to somebody who really believed that sexual expression outside of marriage was wrong. And after her shock wore off that she was actually talking to someone who really believed that, and after she stopped laughing at some of his views, she said, seriously, Russell, do you know how strange this sounds to me? And he said to her, yes, I do, actually. It sounds strange to me, too. But what you should know is we believe even stranger things than that. (laughs) We believe a previously dead man is going to show up in the sky on a horse. So let us dare to believe strange and yet glorious things. Let us embrace the strangeness of the gospel without ourselves being too odd that we lose the opportunity to present the gospel in a way that's heard. Let us dare to live differently. So Father, help us, because in this moment, what we're talking about 
is relatively easy, but how we work this out in the marketplace, in our neighborhoods, in our summer jobs, in the university setting, that's when this gets really complicated. And thank you that you're bigger than even those complications. You're sovereign over all these things, and we can trust you and rest that this strange gospel has become our hope. So, God, would you help us to turn from ways in which we have gone too far under the radar? Forgive us when we've been ashamed that we're a Christian. And forgive us for the moments where we have been insensitively bold. Help us, God, to be the kind of people who believe with wise conviction and believe with dependent faith. We need your help. There are some brothers and sisters in this very moment that are wrestling with what do I do with a particular situation. I pray that you'd give them wisdom and grace. And thank you that at the end of the day we can rest knowing that you are on your throne. Help us to dare to believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.